when you're a child, you remember, I think, just images and uh, some scenes like almost in the movie mm -hmm. uh, without really understanding what's going on. And, and that was certainly the day, uh, that was my experience the day that we left. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, gun battle, helico unmanned helicopters, um, you know, uh, sh soldiers de deserting, um, hearing gunshots. Vaughn recalled his last memories of Vietnam before he left with his father, grandmother, and eight brothers and sisters in April 1975 during the fall of Saigon. My special guest today on the Face World podcast is Von Lee. We first met in 2006 and kept in touch ever since. Von is now the father of two adorable children and runs his own law practice at Von Paul Lee Law Firm in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Von has a genuine and compassionate soul. He's an entertainer who can make anyone laugh. He's a friend who is easy and comforting to be around. Many people, myself included, find these qualities foreign and perhaps a little bit strange when it comes to describing a lawyer. For years, I've been eager to sit down with Vaughn and find out about his secret origin. What exactly made him into who he is today? In this episode, Vaughn speaks to us about his journey from the fall of Saigon to Commonwealth School, Harvard University, and running the biggest student organization at Harvard called Phillips Brooks House as the president during both junior and senior year, as well as running a campaign for the mayor of Cambridge and won one year of public service in Philippines, the sports philanthropy project, and most recently launching his own law practice. I was shocked by the end of the conversation just how little I knew about Vaughn and his incredible life journey. So my challenge to you today is when you get a chance, whether recorder or not, try asking your friend or your colleague or your family members a series of questions and I bet you'll be surprised too. Perhaps you'll want to write about them. My guests always tell me how much, just how much, they enjoy sharing their experiences and packaging them into an hour conversation with me. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Von Lee, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to share his journey and wisdom with you. Sound bites, links, and other resources are available on my website at faceworld.com, F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. If you enjoy this episode, I welcome that you check out other episodes also on my podcast. It would be great if you consider writing a review for me on iTunes, Stitcher, and share with your families and friends. So I am here live with Von Lee, and I have a big smile on my face because I feel like that's one feeling I always get from you. Every time I go for dim sum, hang out, every time I talk to you, you just put a smile on my face. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, the, feeling, the feeling is very mutual. <laughs> mutual. <laughs> and over the years, it's, it's been wonderful to um, keep up our uh, friendship, and I really appreciate your coming. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I realize if I ask people to guess what your profession is, and perhaps happiness, smiling, and comfort doesn't quite naturally derive from the title uh, lawyer. No. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes I, I do feel like, uh, uh, you know, the work is, is, uh, is very different from um, what I would like to do on a daily basis, but mm -hmm. um, there's so many good parts of uh, practicing law you're really solving people's problems um, a lot of times, and that is a part of you know the joy that I uh, get from my work. I'm uh, I'm almost fifty, so <laughs> uh, it's uh, the bio is a little long, but uh, in a nutshell, I have a, uh, a law practice in the uh, uh, inner city of Boston, Dorchester community. 
I work with uh, immigrants, uh, particularly in the areas of real estate and general business, uh, which is uh, more my background. Uh, but uh, I had uh, uh, previous experiences during my legal career where I worked as a, a consultant, part law, but mostly consultant in uh, corporate philanthropy, uh, mostly in the sports sector. And um, uh, prior, to, prior to going to law school, I did a lot of public service and nonprofit work. Um, so that's, that's basically my work uh, history. That's great. And why um, did you choose Dorchester in Massachusetts? Well, I'm, I'm Vietnamese-American, and uh, you know the Vietnamese community uh, really uh, grew out of this base here. Uh, I think um, there must be five to ten thousand. You know, the, the numbers are not uh, very accurate because uh, the community changes uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. But it's really centered here, so I have a nice base of uh, uh, Vietnamese clients. Uh, I think that about half of my clients are uh, Vietnamese, mm -hmm. and the other half are diverse. Uh, you know, this area is very diverse. We have Cape Verdeans, we have, of course, African American. Um, mm -hmm. The you know you have Irish Americans. Um, you have a, a thriving Latino community also here, so mm -hmm. uh, I I, th I think I'm I'm operating uh, in a very diverse community here. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we talked about your background before we hit record the recording button. Okay. And the fact that you've came to this country, uh, you came to this country when you're a little boy. Yep. Uh, five years old, I, I can't yeah, remember. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> roughly. I. I um, when I left Vietnam, uh, I was about six, seven years old, mm -hmm. and uh, this is 1975 Black April. Mm -hmm. um, when you're a child, you remember, I think, just images and uh, some scenes like almost in the movie mm -hmm. uh, without really understanding what's going on. And, and that was certainly the day, uh, that was my experience the day that we left. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, gun battle, helico unmanned helicopters, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sh soldiers de deserting, um, hearing gunshots. Uh, and when you're a little boy, you don't really know uh, everything that's going on. I remember thinking, wow, you know, there are stores with candies uh, in it and that's empty. I wonder if we can just get the candy. That's what, <laughs> all I, what I was thinking about anyway. <laughs> Didn't really know what was going on. I, and certainly my father uh, told us, that we were just going on a vacation and that we won't be back for a while. Mm. Uh, little did we know that we would uh, flee by boat. Uh, we were boat people in 75, uh, fleeing uh, uh, when Vietnam was falling. And uh, we uh, basically fled by boat out to the ocean and we were picked up by uh, the uh, a Filipino ship working with uh, the American Navy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, my story is one of a million uh, Vietnamese Americans mm -hmm. who came over th this way, and many, uh, actually only one-third made it. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's two-thirds who get, you know, either die or get caught, and then go up, they have to go back to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So, I, yes, I, I was one of the fortunate ones, uh, boat people who made it to America in 1975. Yeah. Uh, we were refugees. We were not immigrants. You know, immigrants, you know, the difference, I think, is you're, you know, uh, you by choice, you decided to migrate to another country for a better future or what have you. Mm -hmm. But refugees, you're fleeing uh, from your country, and you don't really, you're not really prepared. It was really not by choice. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have the uh, the as many options, mm -hmm. and you you don't get to bring many things with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you basically, I, I remember my sister who. There's nine children in my family. <laughs> my oldest sister had the wisdom of taking the most valuable things with her, and, and that was uh, pictures, uh, old family pictures that are irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. So she took a lot of pictures. Uh, my dad, uh, he took as much, you know, uh, jewelry, but at, at the time, the Vietnamese currency was worth nothing, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we didn't really take much money with us. We just took whatever things we had, and we just uh, went out in, into the ocean and not knowing where we would land. So that, that that's, you know, uh, uh, unfortunately was the experience of many people who fled in 1975. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a 
amazing survive, survival story yeah. as a young kid. <laughs> yeah. you know, um, I, I, I do remember, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, people looking the same. When, I, when, when we were rescued by the American ship, I remember looking uh, at a roll of maybe 20, 30 uh, white males with, you know, all like crew-cut hair, and they all looked the same to me. <laughs> it was it was it was bizarre. I said, "Wow, they all look the same." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and I also remember, you know, on our little boat, there were deserts, uh, sh- soldiers who had deserted, and they were dumping their guns and bullets into the ocean. Mm. And I remember, as a six-year-old, I was, you know, playing with bullets, rounds of bullets, and also dropping them into the ocean because. Uh, you know, uh, these weapons were uh, certainly no good anymore at the time. I wonder when your your childhood story is drastically different than, you know, those from various parts of the States, you know? Um, well, I mean, you know, uh, there were people who fled by boat. We were boat people, so-called boat people. Um, and there were people who fled by land uh, from Vietnam over to Cambodia and Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there were people who uh, were related and connected to the U.S. government, and they were airlifted out. And so they were the, the select few uh, mm-hmm. who uh, got, got out that way. But uh, And then after 75, there were uh, immigration programs that allowed uh, the orderly departure. Um, mm-hmm. It's called ODP, and there's other programs uh, that allowed uh, Vietnamese to um, reunite with their families over here, Mm -hmm. or if they were persecuted uh, by the Vietnamese government, they could also uh, apply uh, as an immigrant to come over under special immigration programs with the U.S. government. But those numbers are very little. Mm -hmm. I would Mm -hmm. say the the vast majority of people fled in 75 and then again in 78. And then throughout the 80s, there there were uh, still uh, a lot of folks who were fleeing uh, mm-hmm. Vietnam, uh, but those were the major waves, I would say. Well, I've never had this complete picture of what happened, and I also heard that prior to this image that you painted, that your family was very well off and you had a very comfortable life. Well, it's, it's funny, you know, uh, you know, uh, fortune comes and goes, and I, mm-hmm. that, that's certainly the truth, uh, true for my dad. He was... Uh, one of 14 children, a farming farming family, and uh, he grew up poor. Uh, but by the time he was 38, and by the time that we uh, fled Vietnam, uh, he had a, sh- a sugar factory. He had uh, uh, he had ownership stakes in banks, mm-hmm. lumber mills, um, petroleum. He he did very well mm-hmm. uh, for himself. Uh, but you know. Uh, at that time, he was viewed as uh, aligned with the U.S. government and certainly a threat to the the Viet Cong back then. So he was targeted. He was actually uh, they they tried to assassinate him many mm-hmm. times because he refused to uh, pay what they said uh, were um, taxes owed to liberated uh, liberated lands that he had owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's going back to the politics of that era. Um, but uh, we, you know. Um, we certainly had a life back in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and as a child, I remember running around playing in the tropical rains with my kid, my friends, my childhood friends, and mm-hmm. um, you know a lot of pleasant memories. I, you know, I, I did know that there was a war, but it was always somewhere else and not where I was. So mm-hmm. I didn't really understand that the country was at war. I just remembered that, uh, and seeing in the news that there were stories of war and and death. Mm-hmm. But uh, that, you know, uh, was still far from from me until mm-hmm. we really had to leave. And then still I didn't know <laughs> much mm-hmm. what was going Five, on. Five, six years old. Yeah, at six years old, yeah. But, and uh, and the, first de- des- the first destination I heard that you arrived was not in Boston, right? No, no. So, I mean, a lot of, uh, uh, and thanks to the, the uh, U.S. government at that time, I think President uh, Ford uh, was was uh, primarily involved, but they had a uh, program to evacuate and to uh, um, basically allow Vietnamese uh, who fled Vietnam to be first processed, if you will, in the Philippines mm-hmm. in the refugee camp. That's when I was first introduced to Bugs Bunny, which is fantastic. <laughs> Daffy Duck. I said, "Wow, this is." You know, we watched movies all day, you know, cartoons, and had food. I said, well, this is great. This really was a vacation, mm-hmm. except it was probably a one-way ticket. But uh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so from there, we, we, we were processed again in Indian Town Gap, which is outside of uh, uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And then um, my father knew a doctor who, worked, who operated on my mother um, uh, uh, in Vietnam, and he sponsored us, uh, he and the Catholic parish in Pittsburgh, sponsored my family to live in Pittsburgh from 75 to 78. Mm. Uh, uh, we, you know, got to go to Catholic school. We, um, the community donated uh, furniture and clothes to us. I mean, it's it was a wonderful uh, time. Mm-hmm. And um, I, mean, I remember receiving furniture from uh, that our house, our family received furniture from the Frick family in Pittsburgh, and they were a very well-known, wealthy family. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it it was we we certainly um, were welcomed. We were uh, helped. Mm-hmm. Um, we were um, uh, we 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 received a lot uh, of charity, mm-hmm. <laughs> which uh, which which was a, f- a phenomenal thing because my my father certainly was by our standards multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. But then we became re- what really was you know destitute people in a new land mm-hmm. in, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and um, I think for the past 30 years, um, philanthropy has been this consistent theme, regardless of other changes in your life, um, and I kind of see where that came from, you know. I, I probably, probably. I think it came also from my mother. When I, I my, my memory of my mother um, is, I think, and, and my grandmother, because when my mother passed away, um, I think in uh, yeah seventy three, she also left a memory of someone who was very warm and very uh, giving, and my mother's mother, who when my mother died, really took over and helped raise me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was always very you know compassionate and giving uh, to anyone and, and strangers. Mm-hmm. So I think I mostly learned from those relationships, mm-hmm. but then I also learned because um, it's not subconscious. I'm not you know some kind of good person, but. I think you just you know something just happens. You you receive a lot, and then you turn around and you mm-hmm. you do your share. And maybe it's subconscious or intentional. I don't know, but it's always been a part of me mm-hmm. to try to do something that um, you know uh, helps people in some small way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, uh, even as you try to provide for yourself and mm-hmm. you know take care of your own family. If there's a way that you can also help others in your community, mm-hmm. um, that was always part of my ethic, I think. And I think you started doing really, really good things for the community, for people near around you at an early age. <coughs> Excuse me. If I may just quickly kind of fast sure. forward a bunch sure. of years. Um, a lot of stories I've heard about you is from high school. Right. And I know I probably skipped over um, American elementary school, middle school, and please feel free to invoke any stories sure. as you find relevant. Sure. Not only that, uh, you know, the hardship that your family lived through, uh, I think your family, all your brothers and sisters have done very well for themselves. And uh, you in particular, you know, I'm not sure if you read, I think U.S. News or uh, the Fortune magazine basically mentioned the Commonwealth School uh, here in Boston, Massachusetts, particularly on Newbury Street. Commonwealth School is ranked, I think, number one in the country, I think. Mm. And it's amazing. And that's a, that's the high school you attended. And, and then later on, you went on to Harvard. So could you tell me something along the line of perhaps how you, uh, how you applied and, and how you've kept your focus. Sure. I I really have to, I'm not just trying mm-hmm. to be humble or, uh, you know, a false modesty or whatever. Mm-hmm. I really think it was uh, luck. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. as you've heard, it was luck that we made it over here. It was luck that, you know, uh, we were helped by so many people. And it was luck that I also uh, um, did okay in school because, uh, well, first of all, my family always had the ethic for education. Mm-hmm. Uh, my uh, my father, uh, my mother, they've always placed a real emphasis on education. Uh, that's one thing that they said that people can't take away from you mm-hmm. is your education. Um, so they always uh, stressed the importance of, of doing um, your, your you know doing well in school. Uh, I actually went to public school and. Uh, we were too poor to even think about private school. So uh, someone recruited me. It was uh, someone in uh, in some summer program for inner city kids, uh, uh, Linda and Jane, these two wonderful people, uh, told me that, um, hey, you did very well in uh, 
uh, Boston Latin uh, Academy. Uh, why don't you apply to private school? And I, I didn't even know what what it was or where or who. You know, how do you start? <laughs> so she, they literally took me down to the Commonwealth School and. Um, nobody in my family knew that I had applied. Mm, um, wow. uh, I, you know, there was no way we we, we would have money. I mean, uh, back in eight, 1983, $5,000 was a lot of money. I <laughs> think it's the equivalent of, you know, probably twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 now. I don't know. But uh, it was a lot of money, and we certainly uh, did not have that as an option. Uh, but uh, I, I applied. I got in. I, I, I I still don't know why I got in <laughs> because, um, you know, the class, these were, you know, I think exceptional kids, mm -hmm. children of mostly professional and well-to-do folks, you know, established old money folks uh, mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, Brookline and Cambridge and Wellesley. And these were, I would say, I would say very, very privileged and very well-prepared kids. Mm -hmm. And although I had straight A's in uh, public school, I, I nearly flunked in my first year <laughs> at Commonwealth School in 10th grade. Uh -huh. I was no longer a hotshot. Um, and so I had to relearn a lot of things. I, they introduced critical thinking, which is so important um, mm -hmm. as a child. Um, you, a lot of times, especially in Asia, I think learning is about rote memory and your ability to regurgitate. But at Commonwealth School, and with many good schools, I think the emphasis is no longer, you know, you still remember things, but it was more important to uh, to uh, train your brain to critically uh, think uh, and analyze things. And that's, that's the first time that I was really exposed to uh, that and... Um, and I think I, I credit Commonwealth for 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 doing that. Uh, that was very well done. It was a lot of time and effort that they had invested in me. Um, this is so. a, yeah, this is amazing because um, the Commonwealth uh, the reputation it's it's really known in our community, and I don't know uh, as well as the rest of the country. But I would imagine when I talk to my friends in Hong Kong, she's like, of course, hey, of course, I've heard of Commonwealth, and this is someone from well, Hong Kong like well. five, ten years ago. <laughs> So let's. Um, I was wondering, did you receive any type of scholarship? I did. I did. I uh, they so <laughs> the package. I, the package I remember was half of it was from Commonwealth School, and you know it was not a well-to-do or well-established school. It may be highly regarded now, and it was I think highly regarded back then. But it was more like a experimental, you know, mm -hmm. renegade school. We're gonna take these, you know, thirty, forty kids. And we're going to treat them like adults, and we're going to let them. You know, we're going to get them to, you know, to learn and think, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and to get ready for college and life, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, as you know, as much as possible. And I think that's that was the experiment, really. Um, and more importantly, it was also a community where they really tried to promote a, an ethic of uh, being a part of community. We. Um, you know, we 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 took turns doing school chores. Uh, mm -hmm. We tried to look after each other. Um, you know, and uh, the fact that it was so small, mm -hmm. um, you know, you really you know you really had to. Uh, people just knew if you did your homework or not. I mean, it was just plainly no obvious. You couldn't really hide. <laughs> I mean, um, so. Um, I, I love how you sounded so still so humble and very serious uh, this far, but. I'm going to go quickly that what you were really known for at a Commonwealth back in the 80s uh -huh. uh, were theater, dancing, uh -huh. singing, acting, creative writing. Yeah. So <laughs> wow. are well, you ready to talk about those? Yeah, sure. I, 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 think, um, I, think, I think it was a community that allowed you to express yourself. And if you weren't afraid of failing, um, you know, you, you would... Uh, I think tr allow yourself to be creative and uh, although I also practice martial arts I always um, enjoyed the you know creative self-expression and um, uh, although I was Asian I uh, had my fair share of, of uh, you know roles at uh, in the plays at Commonwealth mm -hmm. and uh, we also took dance and we also did creative writing and um, I very much enjoyed that. It, for me, it was uh, an outlet for the new worlds I was seeing. I mean, I was thrown from an inner city, you know, immigrant refugee background to, 
you know, the upper crust Brahmin, <laughs> you know, uh, society really of uh, at Convo School, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's you know, my summers were not in Europe <laughs> or in Hawaii. My summers were you know doing you know uh, anything I could do to make money. So I, I, I've got so half of was half of my tuition was Commonwealth. You know. A, Probably twenty percent of it was money that I had to work to make to pay for my tu- my own tuition. As a 14, none of it came as a fifteen fourteen fifteen mm-hmm. year. None of it came from my family, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the state also had a little bit of scholarship money. So I was always one who benefited from a, a lot of these things. Uh, so you know, maybe subconsciously I feel like I owe owe somebody something, and that's maybe part of the reasons why mm-hmm. I continue to try to you know do something that benefits others too. Uh, in my in my life or during my career, and I think the the next part of your journey from Commonwealth was um, Harvard University. Right. So as much as you want to say that you were not a great student or you got lucky, how many times could you get lucky for? As well, well? <laughs> I well I again this is not not false modesty. I think back in the eighties, yes, you know Harvard or any of the Ivy Leagues or the top schools were very hard to get into. But fast forward 25, 30 years later, it's only become, I think, what, four or five times as hard as as the world produces, you know, more and more top-notch students. But anyway, so I do feel I was lucky to get into Harvard. Mm -hmm. I was also lucky to get uh, enough scholarship that enabled me to to go there. Um, And, you know, I I really enjoyed Harvard. I mean, not not because I really do believe that you can get a good education Mm -hmm. wherever there are good teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the branding really helps. Um, but for me, what's more important were the students who uh, were just uh, amazing. Um, so I, I thought my classmates were were a big part of it of the of the of the uh, special experience. Um, but also the opportunities. I mean, you know, it's it's just uh, so many things are opened up to you mm-hmm. uh, at that university, um, mm-hmm. and th- those were the two. Uh, big things and the third thing is I did a lot of public service in college um, and the reason uh, actually I don't know what the reason was again but I enjoyed it uh, we we were able to put together programs and do things that were not in the ivory tower that took you back to the housing projects that took you back to the real problems of society and um, you know even though those four years are supposed to be uh, gearing you up for Wall Street and, you know, um, mm-hmm. a probably a, a sheltered, very lucrative <laughs> rest mm-hmm. of your life. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I didn't do some of the public service work. I would continue to look the other way at the social programs, you know, because, you know, you've, you know, you struggled. You, you know, you came from a broken community or a broken uh, background and here's your chance to you know here's your ticket you know mm-hmm. ticket you know by choice to to for, to a better life right um, but uh, for whatever reason I mean I I also made college uh, uh, some very critical years where it really shaped uh, I think my 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 view mm-hmm. of how uh, I should relate to people and mm-hmm. my role in society uh, and. It's become a more inclusive uh, idea that I do feel that I'm connected to other people, mm-hmm. um, and that really came from my years at Harvard and at Commonwealth School. I think. Let's talk about Phillips uh, Phillips Brooks, Brooks House. Sure. Yeah. What is that actually? I don't well, know. It's very it's much. just a, yeah. It's it's just a student organization. It probably has it's the largest one. It probably has eleven to twelve hundred student volunteers uh, mm-hmm. doing all kinds of uh, public service programs from running summer camps to teaching uh, in prisons to homeless shelters to mm-hmm. organizing unions you know to advocating for the environment you name it it's basically uh, an org- a student-run organization that promotes public service what was your role and what type of activities have you participated uh, sure well I, I I lived during my summers at Harvard I lived in a housing project in Cambridge to work with inner-city kids mm-hmm. Um, and then I later uh, ran that summer program, 
and then I became uh, the student president of that organization. Um, wow. For how long? Would they junior senior year? Well, ju- yeah. Uh, so sophomore year I was a vice president, and then junior year I was uh, the, the president mm-hmm. uh, of the organization. And it was it was great. It was you know it was leadership training too. I mean, because at an early age, you're asked to like manage a staff, mm-hmm. put together a budget, raise money. Mm-hmm. You know put together a curriculum to teach the kids. I mean, even as you're like going to college and trying to excel in school. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, you know, it, I think it was, it was more rewarding to me than, you know, helping other people. I feel like I was being helped because mm-hmm. I, at an early age, I, I was, exp- and, and my other classmates too, were exposed to these um, wonderful opportunities uh, that really challenge you in all aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes you think that, well, it's, you know, it's, you know, Taking a test is easy compared to mm. having to run a program for 200 inner city kids. Mm, wow, 200. And you're 19. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of kids, I mean, uh, in these programs. Uh, so, uh, how, how big was the team that you manage? Well, we had uh, 13, one summer we had 13 um, uh, camp counselors and we had, mm-hmm. you know, 13 junior camp counselors who were high school students from the housing projects mm-hmm. um, and then we had a deputy uh, director and myself as the director of the program and we and Flores Books House was running eight of these programs you know throughout the neighborhoods Chinatown mm-hmm. Roxbury Mission Hill Cambridge you know uh, uh, Austin Brighton mm-hmm. and so that's just one of the things they did and so we, we did a lot of that public service uh, in college yeah so after four years of Harvard, mm-hmm. how did you land your first job? And like for you, I, I would imagine because you're you're very have a very multifaceted life, and you're equipped with many skills. You, you know, um, right after college, I I, I I received a Rockefeller Fellowship, and I went back to work in the refugee camps in the Philippines for a year. Wow! Um, no, no, no. Yeah, I uh, I that was a fabulous year because basically you you, you got to go to a neat place. Yes, you were doing public service, but you were traveling too. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, a wonderful year. And uh, I came back um, not, uh, I feel like, you know, you can be on a track. And a lot of my classmates were tracked and I, sometimes I envy them because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had roommates in college who knew that they were gonna go to medical school or law school or business school mm-hmm. and they needed to get you know, this grade point average and this amount of score. Mm-hmm. You know, I somehow I didn't get the memo. I, I didn't mm-hmm. do any of that. <laughs> and um, and I remember, you know, after coming back from my uh, year abroad doing public service work, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I, I had the idea that I would like law because a lot of the things that I was dealing with with involved policy, involved, you know, laws that work or don't work. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that might be an interesting thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of backed into going to law school. Um, you know, I, I came back and did a year uh, where I ran uh, um, uh, a, a local campaign and I worked for the mayor of Cambridge for a year mm-hmm. uh, before I went to law school. Um, so, uh, you know, talk about taking the safe route. You know, they statistically, most Harvard students would become either a doctor or a lawyer or get an MBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's uh, statistically, it's sadly tracked like that. Um, but maybe, you know, what maybe else would you do? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, changed, I, I, I wonder. Yeah. I think it's it's still very, you know, the statistically, those were the safe things to do, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, uh, get an MBA, mm-hmm. get a law degree or become a doctor. Those mm-hmm. are your choices. Yeah, <laughs> Pick at the one. Time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you uh, already started talking about being a campaign manager, and um, I, I don't want to change um, your actual title. What was that experience like? Well, well, well real, real quickly, well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ken Reeves, uh, when he first ran, uh, he didn't make it. Uh, mm-hmm. So the second time he ran uh, was when I was his campaign manager, and he did make it. And I think it has a lot to do with the demographics and who's running at the time. But uh, we we were lucky. Uh, he he did very well. Uh, but mm-hmm. I remember halfway through the campaign, he came out and he told me, "Oh, by the way, I'm a, uh, you know I'm gay." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, I remember looking at him and saying, "You know, this is." when it was not popular to be gay, <laughs> yeah. especially if you're trying to get votes from black churchgoers. Mm-hmm. It was not something that, um, 
you know we thought would really help the campaign but we didn't care i mean you know we we ran the campaign on the strength of his uh, experience um his um his track record and his relationships in the community and so mm-hmm. uh i remember telling him again you know i love you as a person i don't care you know mm-hmm. if you're gay or straight or whatever i just i want to win <laughs> mm-hmm. i yeah. want i want you know, these these issues are too important we need to get you in there he treated you like a strategist uh, and I you don't, were 25? Yeah. No, 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 I was 22. I just graduated oh, from college. I, I ran it for six six months before going on my Rockefeller Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, when he was mayor, I worked for him for a year. But So that, that was kind of the, um, the, the, the timeline. But um, I, I was Asian working in the African-American community. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is in the early 80s. Uh, you know, gay, gays were were still being beaten in the mm. streets. I mean, that's it was a horrible time. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I um, uh, I did work as his campaign manager. Uh, yes, there there definitely a strategy. I mean, as you know, a campaign mm-hmm. is really um, uh, set up to uh, convey messages. You know. Mm-hmm. Because you're really trying to convince voters that you're you're the right person for them on the issues, mm-hmm. um, and yes, a lot of a lot of uh, strategy has to go into it. And then you you gotta get the message out. You gotta it gotta be persuasive. And then you gotta get the people to co- actually come out and vote for you. Mm-hmm. And these are folks who have they have not voted for you in the past because you're new. Mm-hmm. So that's the, another element to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was fun, very fun. I mean. Um, um, and th- and when he became mayor, I worked for him in local politics, and I, I very I very soon realized that you know government and public life is not easy mm-hmm. at all, and a lot of times what is put out there is not the truth necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it involves a lot of spin. You know, people spinning stories and hoping that people can get their view of the world. Um, Mm-hmm. you know out there but anyway yeah so i it was very interesting it was very eye-opening uh, to say the least you guys are still friends today oh yeah he's the godfather of my my daughter yeah <laughs> wow. yes yeah so i you know we just i just saw him a couple of weeks ago at dinner and um uh this is 20 uh, yeah. some odd years later yeah. since 85 so almost yeah. 30 years wow yeah. almost yeah. 30 years yeah almost that's 30 incredible. years yeah. and that's your first job and um as a lawyer <laughs> Yes, oh, yeah. yes, yes. Well, and then um, uh, I went to law school. I went to Northeastern uh, Law School. Um, you know, it's, it's an incredible community. It, Go Huskies. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. that's right. It's an incredible experience uh, because it made they made law school fun, uh, exciting, intellectually challenging, uh, but also practical and useful. Um, I... I worked in some great firms when I was in, at law school, mm-hmm. and I met great people, whom are many of whom are my colleagues now in practicing law. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, law school was great, and um, my my first job was with a big law firm. Uh, I came out with a lot of debt, and this was a quick way of dealing with eighty percent of it. So, <laughs> yeah, so I worked for a for a, a law a big law firm. Uh, doing mostly corporate law. Uh, um, yeah, at that time, we one of the big clients we had was Mitt Romney and um, uh, Bain Capital, mm-hmm. and I was you know uh, a lower uh, level associate. We did a lot of contracts and you know a lot of uh, paperwork stuff that I think the average person would find <laughs> amazingly boring. But uh, uh, it it was. Uh, it was very fast-paced. There were a lot of transactions based. Uh, this is during the tech bubble years, uh, mm-hmm. where you know if you had an idea, people would throw money at it uh, mm-hmm. right away. With uh, and, and so we were all a part of that. <laughs> um, That's great. I mean, yeah. it's a very well-known law firm. Is it possible to reference the name? Um, um yeah. I mean, <laughs> you you could, but I mean, let's just say it's you know it's one of the the bigger law firms in Boston, and um, uh, they. Uh, they specialized in leveraged buyouts. Um, mm-hmm. They had um, they were no, known for uh, corporate transactions for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they 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 did a lot of things well. They still do a lot of things well. But um, I think that their corporate practice was just enormous. Uh, country for you know they they were reg- very well regarded and mm-hmm. um, top twenty five firms in the in, in the country. Mm-hmm. 
uh, for their uh, corporate practice. But anyway. But anyway, let's move on to yeah. the, the very fun topic, and I think the audience will find very intriguing, uh-huh. which is SPP, which stands for sports. Oh, yeah, 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 sports philanthropy project. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's. Uh, you know, it's 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 funny. Sometimes you run into, uh, sometimes you get a job where it really uh, challenges different aspects of your experience and background. And so it's doing philanthropy, which is a big part of my my, my experience yeah. in a corporate setting, but in but mainly the sports industry. Mm-hmm. So we were really doing um, you know consulting uh, for. Uh, professional sports uh, at the team level, at the league, and also at the league level. Mm-hmm. Um, we received a grant from uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to promote public health. And the theory was we would work with uh, professional sports because professional sports, they're excellent at messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, think about Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Or Bank of America, let's say, or some other large corporation. Well, they would partner with the local team or the league level to get their branding out. Mm-hmm. So the theory was, well, why can't we, as nonprofit or uh, philanthropic um, uh, folks, uh, partner with them to get our messaging out? And it could be anti-smoking. Mm-hmm. It could be fighting childhood obesity. Mm-hmm. It could be wear your seatbelts. Mm-hmm. It could be save the environment, it could mean anything. And they're so effective uh, at getting the message out because, uh, let's face it, in America and many parts of the world, uh, sports is is a big attention grabber. People uh, are sometimes even fanatical about mm-hmm. their team. And so the idea was we would work with uh, these professional entities and also athletes to um, leverage their assets to promote uh, a social cause. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I did was to work on childhood obesity issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, we also worked on you know, team-specific charitable causes. It could be you know, uh, to fight cancer or something, or it could be um, something that is unique or, uh, uh, to that particular team. And we did that for about ten years. It was it, it was uh, it was really was uh, interesting. It was rewarding. It was an excuse to attend a lot of sports sporting events <laughs> and meeting people that I didn't know were famous. Uh, <laughs> uh, like such as such as. Well, I, I don't I don't I mean I again I don't know because I. Uh, I I'm not believe it or not I don't really follow sports and so <laughs> when I meet famous people or uh-huh. uh, people who. Uh, are now retired, but were um, you know big in in their in their time. I, I met a lot of these folks, uh, but I, I don't remember them as much. I worked more with uh, team ownership and management, mm-hmm. and I also worked with um, folks at the league level, uh, whether it be Major League Baseball or uh, the NFL mm-hmm. or the NBA. Um, it's this was a few years back, but uh, I, it was it was a very nice. Uh, gig and we did a lot of, uh, of good because we uh, for a while we believe when before we started mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the philanthropy uh, that we saw in professional sports was more about marketing and getting the brand out and less about impact mm-hmm. which is what are you actually doing to improve your community mm-hmm. and how are you really helping uh, the people that you say you're helping. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we, I think we played a role in changing the question mm-hmm. uh, and putting the emphasis on impact mm-hmm. and return on investment rather than sort of hats and t-shirts and, you know, mm-hmm. go team go kind of thing. Uh, we turn, we, I think we had a role in uh, getting people to set up and really thinking about how effective their philanthropic efforts were. Uh, were they actually really changing the lives of kids that they are purporting to help or not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so. is SPP still thriving now? Well, we, um, well, it, it lasted for a little more than 10 years. Now uh, a colleague of ours uh, uh, has it and runs it in conjunction with uh, the University of uh, Washington down mm-hmm. in D.C. Uh, our grant ended with the Robert Johnson when the Robert Johnson Foundation um, did not renew. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, and that was because I think um, 
and then 2008 with the financial crisis, um, mm-hmm. there were, you know there were lots of lots of cutbacks. But anyway, um, it, the 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 concept really caught on. There are folks who are now sports philanthropy consultants. Mm. Um, so you created a whole you know, new career path. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I I think more schools that have uh, sports management programs mm-hmm. are more focused on that aspect of professional sports now. You can mm-hmm. you can actually take classes and get training in uh, philanthropy in mm-hmm. uh, within the sports uh, world. Mm-hmm. And it, but you know, it's not rocket science. It's really examining your efforts and having a layered approach so that you have an impact, a positive impact in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just uh, that's just something that we try to get folks to do. And mm-hmm. I think more people are doing that. So. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. That's a great impact on the impact that you're trying to establish. Well, we like yeah. to think so because mm-hmm. I mean, these um, think of a, think of a sports team like the Boston Red Sox. Mm-hmm. They have their athletes, they have the ownership, they have the corporate sponsors, they have a stadium. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the talents of the management. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they have tickets, mm-hmm. they have the media access, yeah. they have instant celebrity, right? That's that is, uh, and. When they say something is a problem, the community thinks it's a problem <laughs> because why they have the microphone. Uh-huh. So um, you know, we we always thought that they were great, um, and and also they have access in some cases to uh, fundraising and and wealth mm-hmm. because the people who come to the games, the people who partner with them, the corporate partners certainly also have their foundations, and the team has their own foundation, and the athletes have their own foundation. So there's a lot of resources mm-hmm. that when you um, um, deploy them in a strategic fashion, you can mm-hmm. really make an impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is without s- stating the obvious, um, when a company, Cisco, Microsoft, anybody, mm-hmm. when they want to take on, uh, you know, when they, they, when they want to increase market share, mm-hmm. they will deploy every department, every aspect of their corporation to achieve increased market share. Mm-hmm. Well, in philanthropy, you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you really want to make an impact, mm-hmm. you're going to do everything. You're going to have studies. You know, you're going to have uh, you know the right resources. You're going to uh, you're going to stick to it until you actually get you know make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. So, if 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 folks if folks approach philanthropy with the same vigor mm-hmm. that companies or corporations approach market share, mm-hmm. you're going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, do you really want to do it or not? And that's the question. Do you really want to do this? Or are you just doing it just to say you're doing it? Um, and I think um, it's refreshing when you meet people who really do want to make a difference. Um, and they do want to hear your ideas and uh, and get help on how to really um, make an impact with their philanthropic mm-hmm. investment. I think over the course of your career at SPP, there must have been numerous stories you can reflect upon and you know people that you helped people you saved and where things are you know things different places schools build out just to make the community better um, I feel like there's a pool of stories um, yeah well I um, yeah there, there there certainly there certainly are um, you know as as consultants we, we can't really Say hey, that was my idea. Mm. We got the team to do that, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm not I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we did go to certain teams, and we, uh, you know, did consulting where we analyzed what they were doing, and then we gave them some some suggestions so that they can uh, really look at what the needs were in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Cincinnati, for example, and I won't name the team particularly, you know. Uh, there was a history of racism. What can you do? How can you promote that? Mm. Uh, promote, I mean, diversity and understanding. And one simple thing that you can do is to put a league together where you have uh, kids come together and, and, and play a sport together from different uh, areas. Mm-hmm. That's one simple uh, thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, um, uh, for example, increase health um, uh, and uh, fitness of kids if you not only got them together to play baseball, but you introduce certain, you know, uh, health programs like an eye clinic or mm. monitor their their vital statistics, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, make sure that they are covered in, uh, with insurance. And so we 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 try to get them to think of 
these kids up not just as kids playing, but as you know clients, mm-hmm. as ki- kids who can benefit from social services that these teams can really either provide directly or mm-hmm. provide with their partners. So. I think sports teams are uh, really good in a way that, which I never thought about this before. Is in advertising we talk about owned in terms of platforms. You have owned, paid, and earned, mm-hmm. right? And I realize that when we an example for our own network for you and I would mm-hmm. be like our website mm-hmm. and you know our Facebook mm-hmm. page and LinkedIn profile. Mm-hmm. But for sports, it's almost infinite. You know, tickets, stadium, all these access and resources it's they infinite. have. Exactly, it's infinite. They, I, I won't exaggerate, but mm-hmm. they, they have a lot of. I mean, just access to the media. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of in-kind stuff like the stadium, mm-hmm. tickets. Mm-hmm. They're athletes going to events for you, mm-hmm. promoting your cause for you. Um, you know the the talents the talents of the the management staff, um, the owners. I mean, just think about the owners. Most of the time, they're billionaires, and they mm-hmm. already come with their foundations, their corporate relationships. You know, mm-hmm. and then you think about the vendors, mm-hmm. and then you know, um, I mean, it's 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 a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, just the access to media by itself is invaluable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why a lot of nonprofits love to work with professional sports um, because uh, they can get so much uh, awareness. You know, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that that that, w- that was a, a terrific time, and we we did a lot of things that which I can't talk about, but we, yeah. we basically I think um, helped to improve foundations, their grant making. Uh, improve their uh, some of their partnerships uh, when they're working with certain causes. Um, so it it was a rewarding time. I I know I'm not speaking in terms of specifics, um, mm-hmm. and that's mostly because I I, I cannot. Yeah, it's um, a confidential information. Yeah. I totally get that. But there's but there's one project that I think I can talk about because it was more public, and that was in Arizona. Um, the uh, the taxpayers agreed to. Uh, fund the building of the uh, Cardinal Stadium mm-hmm. uh, and the way they got that legislation through was that they would set aside a, a 20 million dollar fund mm-hmm. uh, to uh, promote um, youth sports and fitness in mm-hmm. Maricopa County and we um, we came in and we did some consulting and we um, uh, help to form an organization that would administer the $20 million fund to promote, um, you know, uh, physical fitness in Maricopa County. And that mm-hmm. was something um, that um, was, I think, uh, very effective because now you had, instead of, you know, random grants here and there, it was put back into the hands of the community um, and administered by a board of community leaders to make sure that uh, the funds uh, have a positive effect. Uh, in Maricopa County, so, so that that was one one thing that was a very public um, initiative that we that we helped to spawn. Well, that's great, and thanks for sharing a, a, an example. And um, uh, what I'm seeing here is sort of the circle of life, Kunamatara <laughs> theme no. here, and and really just we've never completed the story of your life in in sort of a setting like this, uh-huh. and continuously, and the themes we've been talking about painting, you know, from Harvard, even Commonwealth, that philanthropy, law, your knowledge in law, uh, and then strategy when it comes to campaign management, um, processes in terms of managing a team and, you know, financial aspects of things as well. All that kind of comes together and some of the skills and keep repeating, I'm sure you're harnessing on and improving upon and all that comes together to what, who you are and what you do now. Having independent practice, as we all know, that's where all the work needs to come together and you're probably working harder and longer hours than I could ever imagine. Um, What is your vision? Um, I think we talked about at the beginning, but maybe perhaps after talking about all this, it makes even more, makes more sense of what is your vision? What is the service you hope to provide to your clients? Well, I I remember, um, I think I was trained well at the big firm because there were some really sharpshooters there. I mean, some really uh, great uh, mentors. And I remember one particular um, partner who um, handled the big, the big clients. I remember him saying that, you know, 
when a client comes to you, they're not really just looking for legal advice. Mm -hmm. They're looking for a complete advice. Mm -hmm. And that is based upon your understanding of the business, the industry, the laws also, of course, and how the law would operate in a, on a, for that particular set of facts. Really, they, they value a more holistic mm -hmm. type of uh, advice. And that is only part legal. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try to bring that kind of... Um, worldview, if you will, to my legal practice, which is kind of sounds bizarre, but you know, um, but I think it, I think you'll find that it makes sense. For example, I'll give you a concrete example. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the law doesn't help. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's not the best way to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Going to the court, going to the court is just one option. In fact, uh, people know that you know more than ninety percent of the cases get settled before it even goes to trial. So mm -hmm. if that's if that's the if that's the, the, the reality, then I think your clients really appreciate when you have their best interest, mm -hmm. that you're really trying to uh, help s solve a problem that will be most, adv most advantageous, not to you as a lawyer, mm -hmm. but f for them in terms of like achieving their goals, saving their money, mm -hmm. promote, you know, increasing value. I like to approach my work from that angle is how can I help bring all that I know from my life experience and the law mm -hmm. to help solve my client's problem and have it be, the it sounds cliche, but client-centric. Yeah. Because as you know, it's not to my advantage to mm -hmm. resolve a problem quickly. Mm -hmm. I can bill more if mm -hmm. the problem does not get resolved. That's. Mm -hmm. That's unfortunately some 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 folks practice law that way. Mm -hmm. They're not in a rush to uh, resolve something mm -hmm. because the minute the problem gets resolved, you know you can't bill anymore. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe you know maybe uh, I'm talking about a minority of the of lawyers, but I think some some professionals, not just lawyers. I mean, it could be anybody. Bill could and be drill dentists. Bill <laughs> <laughs> drill. Yeah, drill I like that. Bill. Yeah, that's something that I, 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 you know, I like to avoid um, uh, doing. And I, I think a good lawyer and a good, um, uh, I think, I think a good lawyer is more than just a competent, but someone that you that gives a complete advice, not just legal, mm -hmm. but you know, that's it's well grounded in experience. Mm -hmm. And I and try to be that. Connected. Yeah, yeah, I, I think truly so. think everything is connected, yeah. and. Um, I, you know, having gone through sort of the green card process, this mm -hmm. and that, mm -hmm. I realize everybody who's not in law, including people who are in law, underestimate the amount of the complexity that's involved. It's like when you move, it's almost like moving. You always underestimate the amount of stuff you have. In right, class. right. And everything's connected. And, right. and I feel like there's always, especially in law, every decision, every action you take has this downstream impact. Right. And yes. you, as a client, you can only see so far. Right. But someone like you with a holistic kind of worldview, you can more or less predict, certain, you can better predict things that may happen. So. Yeah, I, I think... Um you know, maybe the analysis is not great, but you, you know, like if you're a general contractor, for example, mm -hmm. in some ways you need to understand not only the blueprint from the architect mm -hmm. so that you can ex execute, but you need to know, you know, what good work is in putting together mm -hmm. the house. And everything has to, if the foundation is not right, the rest of it is not going to be right. If the roof is not, air, you know, tight, watertight, it's, it's mm -hmm. not going to work either. So I, I think in some ways uh, you need to be able to understand, execute, uh, do it, you know, uh, efficiently mm -hmm. and with the best interest for your client. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's what I try to bring to my, my practice. Mm -hmm. Even even if it's it's not it's not um, high level corporate transactions, but I bring the same kind of seriousness to you know, whatever I do. Even if it's a small thing, from the small thing to a big thing, I mm -hmm. I try to approach it with great care and with my client's best interest and mm -hmm. um, so that's that's what I try to do that, that's great I, I really like um, uh, this last part and one aspect I would like to introduce on my podcast as the listeners age expand from fresh out of school to people who are um, more experienced and I believe that there are many people practicing law and many other professions are considering in this day and age to kind of come 
um, come out on their own and you know like taking on entrepreneurship and become independent a consultant or freelancers all that what is your advice for people who might be considering law or even in general you know what is it like to um, go out on your own and dealing with clients and you know finding the clients closing out on contract all of that what is that personality what are some of the counterintuitive it's a very yeah. loaded question I know Surprises. well first you know <laughs> uh, I've I've learned that everybody's different so what works for you is not necessarily going to work for them Every, people have different realities that they grew up in mm -hmm. and so it's hard to give um, uh, advice and different people have different needs mm -hmm. uh, all I can say is from my own experience um, I have found that it's helpful to be um, open to new things mm -hmm. uh, to take risks um, uh, to try to live your life the way that you want to live and not live mm -hmm your life the way your parents or your best friend or what you think uh, other people would approve or, or yeah. disapprove of uh, but really try to give yourself a break and a chance mm -hmm. um, because you know if you don't do it you're gonna regret that mm -hmm. you didn't 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 do it and mm -hmm. sometimes the things that you find yourself doing may not be what you thought you would do but it would turn out to be the most satisfying thing. And if you didn't take that risk to the unknown, you wouldn't know. I guess I'm rambling, but, so I, I guess I'm saying be open to new possibilities and really f try to fulfill yourself, you know, fulfill your life with things that you, that you enjoy doing. Uh, it's a, cl a cliche, but it's true. You know, you probably will make some money doing it, but if you put money first, yeah, money can bring some security and some happiness, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in terms of long-term satisfaction and happiness and well-being, those things are important too. And if you don't pay attention to them, you're gonna, you may, you may miss out, and you may be living a humdrum kind of sort of settled for less, you know, mm -hmm. situation. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that, you know, that isn't a good way to go through life. But I think that if you uh, were open-minded to give yourself a, a chance uh, to just strike out and be and do the things that you find satisfying I think you will you'll be happier for it and I think your children will be I have kids now mm -hmm. and I that's what I want for them mm -hmm. I mean I have a two-year-old and I have an eight-year-old and I, I think my role you know I, I in some ways it's like um, they're like rockets and they need your they need fuel to, to help them send you know go to their you know as far as they can mm -hmm. and your your love is the rocket fuel is the jet fuel and so I want to give them as much of that as possible and mm -hmm. let them go where they want to go. And of course, I'll gently guide them as you know, good parents uh, ought to do, mm -hmm. and they should do well and they should be well prepared. Mm -hmm. But it's their life; I can't live their life. Um, and as much as I want to uh, mm -hmm. control outcomes and this and that, I think you you really can't. Mm -hmm. I mean, life is uh, as my life. I think as a testament is so serendipitous. I mean, it's so random. I mean, from a small town in Vietnam to, you know, the upper crust of Boston, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then back again to Dorchester and then the inner city. I, I, you know, I think it's been wonderfully, you know, uh, random mm -hmm. and, um, and exciting. Yeah, I th I think so. I mean. Um, I've I've enjoyed it, and if 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 I have any advice for anyone who's open to the way of thinking that I I have, which mm -hmm. is to be ready for the um, the diversity mm -hmm. of uh, of life as well as of situations and of opportunities, mm -hmm. and, but don't don't track yourself too early because that's mm -hmm. that would be a shame. That would be pretty sad if if you track yourself um, and. Not in in a way that you may not necessarily um, um, are find the most satisfying. I really I really like that because I I was um, laughing a little earlier to say when you suggested do something you feel passionate about, follow your own path, and not something that you feel others will have to approve. You know, I didn't really ask many other people about podcasting in general because I know. You know, as much as my friends really care about me, podcasting sounds a little bit cheesy, a little bit corny, and you know, all that. And but I realized I, you know, one of my guests asked me, Faye, why are you doing this exactly?" Like um, at the very end of the podcast, and I said, 
I want to reflect upon these conversations. And we do this, you know, when occasionally uh, dim sum, lunch, dinner, you're very busy with your kids and your family's very busy. So oftentimes I realize I don't take notes and it's hard to do so when you are having a good time. I want to listen to these. Um, I will certainly in the next few weeks, but also five, ten years from now. I want my kids to listen to this and, and let them realize that look at all these interesting people that I had and I still have in my life. And I want these conversations to pass on. And, and um, you probably realize that 20, 30 years later, a lot of the you know, philosophical approach right now drastically different than what was in the past. So I just want to kind of let you know that this is a journey I've taken on that just like you mentioned. It's wonderful. I think, I think, it's, I think it's absolutely wonderful. I feel honored to be a part of the, your conversation and, and your, your project. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's one thing I also want to leave, and the, and the importance of, of love in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, when you travel, if you travel with compassion and open heart, you will learn more. You get more. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you work with clients and you love your work, you do. You chances are you probably do a better job because you care more. Mm-hmm. And if you approach child rearing and you realize that kids need your love mm-hmm. and you give it to them, mm-hmm. you're ninety percent there. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I, I think um, I've grown up with that ethic and mm-hmm. I think it's so true and it's probably corny and cliche but um, when when I when I have uh, reflected on the important things and the things that oftentimes are the solution I think I think love is really important mm, in, in your family and your work and yeah. everything so yeah that, that's a yeah, thank you so much for the feedback. Four o'clock, and uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. And I was wondering if you were open to talk about with love, compassion, and all that, and you know, uh, and randomness. So mm-hmm. we talk about. Mm-hmm. And how did you meet your meet your wife exactly? <laughs> talk about random. I, I she she graduated from college, was on her college trip, and I was backpacking because I was at the the big firm, and I had uh, ten days to to just blow off steam and I, I i i went to spain and on the you know a, a pop, popular route is you you know you go to the southern tip of spain and you take a, a ferry into morocco and i met my wife on the ferry going to morocco <laughs> <laughs> which is you know very random uh, uh-huh. my my family joke uh, joke and they say oh you have to go halfway around the world to meet your to get a date you know which is <laughs> probably what happened <laughs> so, yeah. did you help her with her luggage I uh, well I don't want to yeah, yes I, I actually um, I actually did help her because I thought wow what's two school age children going to Morocco by themselves and it turned out they looked like they were high school kids but they were but, adults but they were they were adults and we, we didn't really date anything um, but we we traveled together for several days uh, just as traveling companions mm-hmm. and then several years later uh, we started we decided to date but uh, yeah so that's years that's how later Years later. Years later. Years yeah. later. Yeah, we just stayed in touch, and uh, so years later we before the Facebook, Twitter, yeah, ages. Yeah, um, that's uh, right. What, what we did have email, so we did send email mm. to each other. This is 1996, 97. Ooh, yeah, so email was still relatively e- email new. email was was relatively new, but it was uh, allowed us to communicate from uh, you know she was in Japan and. I was here, so yeah, that's that's how we 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 met. And that's great. Kids, they and both of your kids speak fluent um, Japanese. Um, M- mostly Japanese. Some Vietnamese. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's really hard. It's 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 an uh, it's it's an uphill battle. Trilingual. Yeah, yeah. I don't but, think it's uh, called trilingual. Yeah. So she she really um, does a good job of um, you know uh, teaching Japanese, and mm-hmm. uh, so yep. This is great. Thank you so much, Vaughn, for your time. I know you're no, super No, thank you busy. so much. No, this is this is a, a pleasure to you know someone cares enough to you know ask me questions about my life. Mm-hmm. So I I really feel honored. Thank you so much. Yeah, and the feeling is very mutual. <laughs> to listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at FaceWorld. Until next time, thanks for listening.